Right, okay. I think let's make a start. Looks like a whole bunch of people have uh, jumped online, which is great. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this uh, Reach Markets Meet the Fund Manager session. My name is Warwick Lace. I'm the Head of Investor Relations at Reach Markets, and I'll be hosting the session for you today. Um, as many of you would know, uh, Reach Markets hosts a number of different webcasts uh, each week. We have a very popular Meet the CEO session where three listed uh, ASX uh, companies come on every second Wednesday. Um, at midday and uh, talk to us about their companies. We host two trading webcasts, uh, the, next big, the Next Big Trade and Those That Can Do. And then we have this session, the Meet the Fund Manager session, which we host on the last Friday of every month. The common theme across, uh, across those webcasts is if we give you, the audience, the opportunity to ask questions um, of, the, uh, of the guests that we have on. We feel it's an important way and an interactive way for investors to uh, sort of just unearth and discuss companies and um, ideas that they have and ultimately make decisions around their uh, their investment choices. So a couple of quick housekeeping matters. Um, if you would like to ask a question, simply type it into the questions uh, box in the go-to control panel and we'll work our way through those uh, today for you. Um, we'll keep it interactive, so we'll uh, we'll get going. Uh, so if you've got a question, just pop it in straight away and we'll um, we'll try and get to that as quickly as possible. Any information contained in today's presentation is general in nature only and does not consider your personal circumstances. You need to consider whether for yourself whether it's appropriate for you. So today I'm very pleased to be joined by Ron Shamgar, the Head of Australian Equities at uh, Taman Asset Management. Um, Ron uh, came into the industry uh, in a rather unconventional way, I guess, um, but I'll let him tell his own story very shortly uh, about that. Ron was the co-founder of TBF Investment Management, uh, which uh, I believe stands for the Boat Fund, um, where he managed the uh, the small cap value growth fund um, at uh, TBF from 2013 to 2018. Um, so we'll get some very interesting sort of aspects on, into Ron's investment philosophy and approach um, a little bit deeper into the session. But I thought maybe it'll be worth uh, going over. Uh, Ron, you just uh, sharing your story about how you uh, how you came into the industry, and um, yeah, thanks very much for your for your time today. Thank you, Warwick. Thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I've been um, I've been investing for the last um, seventeen years now. Um, uh, I've always sort of had um, so I started my journey having sort of different businesses in different industries. I've always been quite entrepreneurial and I've always had a lot of curiosity in, in how different industries work and how companies make their money and, and meeting, um, you know, founders of companies and understanding how they think. Um, and really, the, you know, my, my passion for the stock market started in, in the 2003 as a private investor investing my own funds, my family funds, and sort of grew from there. Um, you know, the, the, the GFC taught me a lot. Um, you know, and, and really taught me sort of good businesses um, from um, from challenged businesses. And um, after the GFC, I, I really sort of um, decided that where I can add the most value uh, to my investors or, or, or to myself as a private investor back then is really focusing on more on that smaller to mid-cap part of the market. I felt like um, it was a lot easier to get access to management. And by doing so, you can really... Uh, uncover companies before you know the majority of the institutional investor market sort of finds them and, and you get a lot of broker research and so on so started focusing there 
and you know from then on just just grew a large part a large network of investors and and then we obviously uh, sort of through social media uh, and, and a Facebook page we got the ability to have a sort of a launch pad and and, and launch uh, the first fund uh, which was the TBF investment management um, uh, which we ran for five years and um, uh, we had a, a pretty good track record over that time 16% uh, per annum uh, net of fees um, and then um, you know we also uh, went our separate ways and then I joined Tamin uh, 1st of January uh, last year 2019 and, um, and yeah since then I've been the head of Aussie equities and I run two funds for them. Maybe just uh, touching on that uh, that Facebook group, you, you mentioned to me the other day, and I thought that was a, a fascinating uh, little exercise. Do you want to just um, provide a little bit of colour around uh, what you did there? Yeah, well, I mean, I always thought that, um, you know, when um, I never came within the finance industry, which, which I always thought um, possibly maybe it gave me a bit of a competitive advantage in the way I think about and how I look at companies. Um, and so, um, you know, being a private investor and investing in companies and really just was looking for a platform where you know you can establish a track record and have it sort of um, you know uh, be sort of be, be seen by everyone else and, and measured by your success or or not and so Facebook back then and we were talking um, you know, almost 10 years ago uh, it wasn't a social media wasn't as big in the finance world like it is today on Twitter and LinkedIn and so on and so Facebook was a really great platform and uh, just basically we shared the investment ideas in companies and why we were investing in them and it became very popular quite big we had 7,000 followers and and um, and then basically that sort of uh, created the brand and from then on we could launch the fund right so entrepreneurial in in spirit always um just touching on the um, I noticed you had a, a, a manufacturing and engineering uh, sort of education um, a number of fund managers have said to me that they think, you know, particularly portfolio construction, I guess, is more of an engineering challenge or problem than um, than a than a financial analysis one. Um, maybe just go into um, maybe how you, you think maybe a little bit differently about uh, portfolio construction and the sum of the parts versus um, uh, you know versus the whole. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, you know, from terms of an engineering degree, I just maybe because engineers are very analytical, you know, and uh, sort of mathematical in the way we think. So it obviously helps with analyzing a company's financials and seeing certain trends and so on. Um, you know, I guess um, the, the key for, for us is, is really, you know, we, we're trying to find um, companies that have a, um, accelerated momentum in their growth rate. And it's really trying to sort of pick that um, and, and sort of seeing it before everyone else does, or maybe companies that have had issues in the past, but they're turning around. Um, and again, you're seeing that sort of um, growth re-emerging. And, and really the, the, the trick is to, to be able to sort of uh, pick that before everyone else does. And, and maybe um, that analytical, um, you know, uh, sort of engineering kind of background that <laughs> gives you a bit of an edge, uh, that, that could be it. All right. Um, I'm having a little bit of trouble with my uh, screen just sharing uh, sharing the pointers back with you, Ron. So I might just click. Uh, you've just got a few slides, so I might just click uh, click through them for you. Um, just to pop up the uh, the disclaimer slide, and then we can uh, uh, take a second on that, and then move over to um, to 
your investment uh, investment services at Tamman? Yeah, look, I mean, Tamman Massive Management, we're a boutique investment firm based in Sydney. Um, as you can see, we, so we offer wholesale and retail clients a range of investment uh, propositions. So, you know, Australian equities, global equities, property and fixed income. Uh, my role as the head of Aussie equities, I, I manage the two funds on the left. So the TAMIM um, fund, which is Australia old cap, and the, the TAMIM fund, which is a small cap income fund. Each one has a bit of a different mandate. Uh, all cap and essentially invest you know, in all different uh, market caps. It's more probably growth focused. Um, and the TAMIM, the small cap income fund, uh, we're essentially looking for growth and value small caps that are sub a billion dollar market cap but all of them have to pay a dividend, and the way we see it is that the value part of the portfolio pays a really high dividend yield. The growth part pays a very small dividend yield, but that yield will grow as these growth companies grow, and so you get that nice sort of balance, whether it's a growth-oriented market like we've had now, so you get that part of the portfolio outperform, and then whether it's a, it turns into a, a value because a stock pickers market, so you know we'll get that, and in the meantime, we'll get a really nice yield um, as well, so that's kind of the mandate of that one. Right, so picking uh, picking income, uh, I guess, amongst the the smaller cap uh, companies is uh, uh, not something that a, a lot of people are fishing around in in, in smaller caps for for income. Um, maybe just uh, spend a bit of time on your sort of process there and uh, what you um, what you focus on first. Well, the key really we're looking for is companies that can continue paying a dividend. So a big focus is on their free cash generation. And, and surprisingly, a lot of small caps have an amazing history of, of paying consistent dividends. Um, so um, you just got to really find uh, the, the companies that, you know, obviously small caps are not, you know, the, the business models, um, you know, can be a bit more volatile than the, the larger caps. But some of them have pretty robust businesses and they can generate a lot of free cash and pays, you know, really good steady dividends over the years. So, um you know, a good example, for example, the um, salary packaging companies, for example, you know, Smart Group, Macmillan, you know, these companies generate a lot of free cash and paid consistent big dividends over the years. Um, and, and there's obviously some other companies out there. So, I mean, we own somewhere around 30 to 40 stocks in their portfolios. And so I think, you know, you've got to have a bit of um, diversification and you're always going to get a few wrong. Uh, but, yeah, generally... Um, uh, there's some really good dividend on offer in that sort of small to mid-cap part of the market. Kicking over uh, to your investment philosophy. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we, we are fundamentally based um, investing investment funds. So, you know, we are looking um, for value, but, you know, value is not necessarily a, a stock on a, on a low P multiple. Uh, value is essentially a business that could be growing. It might look expensive, but it's actually cheap if you're looking at the next couple of years' earnings growth. And then we, you know, we target these companies that you know, are growing earnings, generating good cash, and we're looking, the key is really looking for um, industries with tailwinds, and there's a lot of value traps out there, structurally challenged industries, stocks of companies that look cheap, but they're actually not because they are structurally challenged. So we're trying to avoid that. Um, and, yeah, um, you know, that's a little bit about my, my background there. Um, and then, obviously, um, yeah, since joining Tamim in January last year, we, we had a really good um, year. Um, the All Cap Fund did uh, almost 56% after fees, and the 
the small cap um, income fund uh, almost 39 percent up. Just, uh, just on that, we've had a question coming from uh, John um, saying exactly exactly what you said. Really good uh, performance through uh, through 2019. Obviously, the uh, March-April period period was um, was a challenge where um, where everything pulled back um, and a decent recovery since then. But just uh, asking uh, asking you, what lessons um, uh, do you think you might have sort of uh, learned coming through that market? Depth? Well, actually, I think if you go to the next slide, it's exactly what we are going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess um, really that, that's kind of really answering um, John's question. So I might sort of talk to this slide and it will just answer the, the, the question for him. Um, so, so really, I mean, you know, if, if we look back at 2020, um, uh, what, what was interesting about, you know, COVID and this whole uh, the sell-off and, and, and this downturn is that, this crisis really began during February uh, reporting season, and, and you know obviously this is the time when companies report their results. And um, you know our, our portfolio and the companies that we own were doing extremely well. And although the market was beginning to sell off towards that mid to late part of February and through March when companies were doing roadshows, it was almost like a disconnect between what the market was telling us is going to happen. And what company management teams were telling us uh, what they're seeing in terms of their businesses, and their businesses were not being impacted by anything yet during that Feb-March period. But the market was obviously discounting because the market was seeing these lockdowns that are coming through. So there, there was a bit of a disconnect. And look, to be honest, we, you know, the, we did not believe that the world would shut down and it did uh, catch us off guard. Um, but, you know, and uh, I mentioned there, you know, it, it was a very quick, 40% sell-off. It's probably the fastest sort of thesis uh, sell-off in human history. And um, so, you know, you know, every day, you know, things were coming down 5-10%. So it was almost sort of, you didn't want to overreact. We, we, we regularly, you know, we were in contact regularly with, with the management teams. And sort of obviously as government policies came about, the shutdown happens, we were just trying to understand, um, you know, which companies, which industries are going to be uh, the most impacted and which are not. And, and sort of um, we, what we did was we realized that, you know, online, e-commerce, electronic payments, um, you know, whether it is uh, o online lotteries, uh, meal kit subscription businesses like Marley Spoon, things like that are actually going to do quite well. And, and so businesses, you know, obviously travel, tourism, and even retail to some extent, you know, so we basically pivoted the portfolio into what we call sort of COVID winners, uh, those businesses that were benefiting. And it took a bit of time, sort of uh, through April. That's when, you know, by being in regular contact and talking to management teams uh, constantly, and which was really good, actually. And this is really the advantage that I think we have as fund managers. We have access to management teams. So we really get to talk to them and understand what's going on. So... We could see where, where sort of who's going to benefit, who's not, and we adjusted the portfolio based on that. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to, you know, that, you know, we were down at one point um, 35% uh, in March. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that um, since then we completely outperformed the market. And the all-cap fund, uh, as of today, has turned positive for the calendar year, whereas the, the market itself is still negative. So it shows that, you know, we don't just sit there um, you know, like a deer staring at the headlights. We just, you know, we take action, uh, talking to management and just pivoting 
and you know you got to be able to react it's very dynamic and um yeah so what we've done is is um sort of pivoted the portfolio to the covid winners and and then really the two lessons that we've learned and we wrote about it to our investors really was uh, we probably should have had a bit more downside protection in the portfolio so we did introduce a policy of having these sort of uh, market uh, option puts uh, as a sort of like a an uh, overlay protection strategy in the portfolio just so you know if, if there is another uh, sell off like we've had in march which is probably unlikely in the short term but um if there is one um those uh, market um puts that we have will give us a bit of a a cushion against some of that sell off so that's one thing that we've implemented as a lesson and then really the other one i guess is um you know sometimes that the market is trying to tell you something and when things were selling off so aggressively we probably should have taken maybe a bit more of a conservative stance and sort of take the portfolio more into cash um but that's that, that's easier in you know said in, in hindsight than in reality because i mean this was unprecedented you know the world shut down it never happened before ever so um yeah so it was quite interesting but we've learned some lessons yep very very interesting did you um I guess talk, talking to your point around sort of going to cash, um, you, you obviously saw companies that you were getting sold down aggressively and um, probably owned them before and um, wanted to own more. Was there was there a, an aspect of doubling down on positions? Well, to be honest, we we, we what, what what I mean during the sort of you know March sort of period, um, early April, we really. There was still uncertainty who's going to uh, be impacted and who's not. Um, so the ones that the, the obvious ones like consumer finance and so on, we just exited any sort of loss-making businesses that may need to raise money. Um, we, we sort of exited those and to look to reassess based on the information that, that we would get in future. Um, so we didn't really sort of um, um, sort of do too much until we understood what was happening, and then we took action in April quite aggressively. As pivoting the portfolio to what we thought are going to benefit from uh, the new world of the COVID world and the companies that we were a bit concerned on. But for example, some companies that we were concerned on at the time, for example, a company like Money3, which provides consumers with auto finance, you, like, you know, uh, logic would tell you that their customers would be struggling and they will be the first ones to default. But ironically, um, a lot of these customers sort of worked in industries like uh, Woolies and Coles and government jobs, and they're, they're the ones that probably the, they had the safest income, uh, and you know, and they actually were paying off their debts quicker. So um, you know, sometimes sort of uh, logic doesn't uh, work the way you think, and then we were able to sort of come back onto the, their company um, and do really well. Yeah, you mentioned access to management as a um an advantage uh, for fund managers, obviously, being able to to get an audience. Um, how far does that access go, and how far do you take it? Does it go over into sort of activism? Do you roll up your sleeves and um, get uh, get involved with management, or is it uh, letting them get get along with uh, running their businesses? Yeah, no, we, we we do not we do not believe. Well, I mean, it's not that we don't believe in shell activism. We just don't do it for the simple fact that when when we invest in a company. It's really, and especially in that smaller to mid-cap part of the market, it's all about backing management teams. So, you know, we're backing these guys because 
they, they have a track record of, of doing, uh, you know, uh, having a successful sort of business background. Um, they have a track record of sort of the building that company, whether they're the founders or so on. And we're really backing them. Hopefully, they have a, a lot, you know, skin in the game, a, a large shareholding as well. So we're backing them to uh, just deliver on their strategy and grow. And so if we think that they're not doing the right thing, uh, we just sell and move on. So, um, you know, um, that, that's the way we, we look at it. Yeah. Just uh, coming back to the point about um, sort of central bank uh, QE and other government uh, stimulus, a question from uh, Raymond. Uh, is it realistic to think that uh, central bank QE and government stimulus will continue to support markets uh, here internationally? What's your what's your so, views on that, Ron? Uh, my view is a hundred percent they will. And basically, if, if if you think about it, you know the, the reason the world is in such a an economic downturn is really because of direct uh, government actions as, as a response to this pandemic. And you know it doesn't matter whether you think what they did is right or wrong. Uh, I think the point is is that by shutting down. Um, you know, complete countries, complete industries, they've created this crisis. And I think they're just not going to let it sort of fall off the cliff, so to speak. I think we're going to see continuous stimulus measures, you know, monetary, fiscal, you know, job keepers or whatever they want to call it. It's going to keep going until we feel that there is enough sort of um, treatment and vaccines and whatever it is that sort of COVID is not as an issue as it is. It's not such a big uh, sort of health scare and things can really open up and go back to normal. So I think they'll just keep printing. They'll just keep um, handing out money and um, they'll deal with the consequences um, later. But I just think it's just that no one's going to let this fall off the cliff uh, because they really are the reason, the governments are the reason why we are in this crisis because of their response. So I think they're just not going to let it fall. And so what's happening and what's interesting is I mean, this is an unprecedented amount of liquidity and stimulus. I mean, GF, during the GFC, um, you know, I think globally about 2 or $3 trillion was printed in total in terms of uh, bailing out banks and so on and helping consumers. So far, we are at $15 trillion globally um, in terms of fiscal monetary um, stimulus. So this is a huge amount of liquidity. And... You know, if you look back then at the GFC, um, you know, um, we came out of it and it wasn't like we had any serious inflation. It's in, and most of that money really went to uh, equity markets, a bit of property and consumers. This time around, it seems that money is going to consumers and small businesses, really replacing their incomes because of the lockdowns uh, and to the equity markets. Um, so that's where that money is going into, and that's why we're quite positive on equities because I think interest rates are going to stay at zero or close to zero for many years to come. I think, um, you know, um, property is obviously going to be constrained by, you know, tightening of lending and, and border closures. So, you know, lack of immigration and so on will impact that. So we don't think it's going to fall off a cliff or, or drop too much, but, you know, I don't see it as a, as a, as a good investment like it was in the last 25 years uh, and you know yeah. you, you're not getting anything in the in the cash and term deposits and you know there's a lot of talk about all these young investors the robin hood investors of the world sort of coming into equities and that's because you know they're looking to invest their savings but they're getting zero anywhere else and they all want to make money so really i, I think equities is going to be really the um 
the, the place to generate a good return. But in saying that, I think it's important to pick the right companies um, and not just, you know, necessarily buy the, the index or the market. Um, so I think longer term, that's that's where that's why we're positive on it because of these reasons. Uh, but in saying that, I just want to make the, the comment that um, you know after such a huge run, um, investors should expect volatility in the next few months. Yep, and I know we've got some uh, some slides on uh, specific companies uh, coming up. So um, looking forward to to getting into some of those. Just quickly, uh, Ron, you mentioned uh, sort of during March and April, companies saying, "Look, we're we know the markets are plummeting, but we're not. We're just not seeing the um, the effects in our business. Um, has has that swung around now with the market sort of returning to to nearly uh, pre-COVID levels? Um, are we still are we yet to see the effects of of the shutdown on companies still? Uh, no. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is that you know, obviously, apart from industries that are just basically. Um, and non-existent like travel and airlines and so on. Um, it seems that basically, I mean, you know, human beings, we're very resilient and we're, we're adaptable. And, and so, you know, consumers have adapted to, the, adapted to the new way of living and so has companies. So even retail businesses, I mean, we're seeing this huge structural shift to online. And I'll talk about one of, these, one of the companies that I'll talk about, but essentially they believe that, um, you know, the, the, the shift to online shopping has sort of... Uh, fast forwarded by 10 years because of COVID. So, you know, those even retail companies are doing extremely well because people are staying on home, they're shopping online, they're spending more and making their homes look better and so on. Um, and so, you know, even, even retail is doing well, even though maybe the people are not going as much to the shopping malls. Uh, people are obviously electronic payments, you know, the buy now, pay later of the world. Um, you know, everything can be done online using that. Uh, Nobody wants to touch cash, so companies that provide those FPOS facilities, for example, like SmartPay, Tyro, they're doing really well, um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I think generally, you know, consumer finance, um, you know, people, um, their incomes are still good because they're getting the government stimulus, so the consumer finance companies are doing extremely well because their customers are actually paying them back quicker. Um, so, um, you know, businesses have adopted. Um, to this change and consumers have and it's probably habits sort of once you're into a habit it doesn't change so I think um, you know uh, so far the companies that we're speaking to in the right sectors you know technology the take up uh, telco for example is a huge beneficiary of working from home and businesses communicating more uh, digitally uh, so we're seeing a boom in demand for, for cloud and cyber security and, and, and data consumption and again if you're, if you're in these right industries that are benefiting, then the companies you're talking to, they're doing extremely well. Right. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's touch on um, some of those uh, key investment criteria that you've, uh, you've been uh, going through uh, already. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I'm not really going to go through um, all of that, but, but really what we're looking for is um, the key is revenue visibility. So... You know, we're not big fans of sort of resource or, or contracting businesses. They don't really have much visibility on whether on the price they take, on, on the contract length and so on. So we're looking for companies that have contracted recurring revenue, ideally sort of, you know, software businesses, uh, uh, telecommunication businesses, payments industries, that they tend to have sort of recurring streams of revenue. So we like that. 
we, we obviously try and understand what, what's driving it. You know, is the industry challenge or is it got really strong tailwinds? Is the company disrupting incumbents or is it being disrupted itself? Uh, again, we're looking for companies that are highly cash generative and profitable, although we don't mind a company that's um, growing really fast, reinvesting, and as long as the top line growth is accelerating, we don't mind them running losses, uh, so that's okay. Um, and management is key, like I said, so we're looking for the guys that have a good track record, and we understand, we're trying to understand um, what's going to re-rate the share price. I think sometimes investors, they, they buy a company because it looks good, but there's no real clear catalyst. What's going to drive other investors to pay up for this stock uh, and, and drive the share price higher? So we're really trying to understand what are the next catalysts. And then, you know, obviously, we, you know, you, you model a business as much as you can for the next couple of years and you, you put a valuation on it using um, whether it's this year or comparable peer multiples in, in the same industry. But, you know, we were just trying to buy at a big discount and I kind of right there, you know, we'd rather be approximately right than precisely wrong on valuations. And I guess, you know, whether a stock is worth a dollar or a dollar ten, it's irrelevant if you're buying it at 50, 60 cents. And so that's the way we kind of look at it. You mentioned um, not being a big fan of uh, sort of exploration and things along those lines. Uh, your view on on gold at the moment? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we don't invest in it, but my view is is that um, if you look back at the GFC, and like I said, you know, the, the amount of money they printed then, they printed sort of eight times more this time around. Back then, gold only peaked three years after the GFC in 2012, I think. So if you kind of apply the same methodology to now, arguably gold has a long way to go on the way up with the amount of money in the system. And, but again, we just um, just like we're not trying to pick where the markets are heading, we're trying to find good businesses. We don't really know where gold is going to be, and that's why we don't invest in gold companies. Yep. All right. Well, that I think brings us uh, quite neatly to uh, when to sell. Yeah. Well, I actually think that selling is the hardest part of investing. You know, it's it's quite easy to buy companies. You know, management are always bullish, and um, it's quite easy to be quite biased to your own sort of investment thesis. Um, and you know it's always easy to think about you know you know um, share price is going to go it's going to go higher because of all of these reasons. But um, we we the, the trick with selling is really trying to take out the emotions out of it. So we have three strict rules, and um, which are basically we would sell if the fundamentals have changed from when we sort of bought the business. Maybe they took on too much debt. Maybe there's a there's an issue there with the industry um, or with the customers uh, contracts or so on. Um, you know, the, if the share price exceeds our valuation, so, you know, if it's uh, getting very expensive, we might not exit completely, but we'll definitely look to take profits. Uh, and then just, just managing a portfolio, so, you know, um, you don't want to own 100 stocks, so really if there's better opportunities out there with larger upside, uh, then we would look to sell and maybe switch to a different one. Uh, and then there's kind of like a, a, a rule that it's, um, you know, that there's no real strict criteria to it, but we, we say when... when when the ducks are quacking, you need to feed them. And it's almost like um, uh, at the utmost point of optimism, share price does really well. The company uh, reports you know, great news, great numbers. Everyone's excited. The share price is up. All the brokers are bullish. And it's almost like the ducks are quacking and it's time to sell. And it's, uh, it's, one, of those, uh, <laughs> it's one of those rules that are to quantify. But, um, yeah, you kind of got to listen to it and... Um, 
and just you know when, when everything looks too good to be true it's time to, to take profits any uh, any ducks quacking loudly for you at the moment uh, <laughs> yeah no, there's, there's definitely ducks quacking there's always ducks quacking you know because you know um yeah i mean uh you know you, you could say it for the buy now pay later sector which we'll talk about um you could yep. say the ducks are quacking, but they, they were quack, they were quacking, you know, six and twelve months ago as well. So um, we still like it. But again, well, when I say sell, it doesn't mean exit. You can just take profits, but still keep a position if you really like the business and the the outlook for the industry. Yeah, very good. Well, let's get into some of those um, some of the topics that you um, that you have prepared for the uh, talk today. Um, EML, um, is it? Uh, are you? Is this? Do you come across these sort of topics from a um, from a sector perspective? Do you identify sectors you like and then go and hunt for the best uh, the best in those sectors, or so how how do your ideas come in the door? I guess. Um, well, obviously, um, uh, by by understanding which sectors uh, are doing well during certain times, like for example now, then obviously we sort of you know look and find the companies that are operating there. But I mean, we, we're more sort of um, I guess, um, you know, bottom-up, so really looking at sort of individual companies, uh, you know, news flow, broker meetings, all kinds of, you know, uh, media uh, news and sort of trying to really pick from, you know, what, what's sort of driving a company. We, we do follow so many companies over so many years. We kind of know what's going on and understand the businesses, and we're really looking for companies that, um, you know, that, that, that keep growing or maybe something has changed and, and, and they're doing really well now. But I mean, EML is a company that, that we've owned for a few years now, and this is a you know a global payments platform. Uh, they've had an amazing track record, as you can see, you know, six years of consistent growth, really just from one customer back in 2015 uh, to you know to to they got two or three thousand different programs globally. Um, so they they are an issuer, um, and they you know they've got that perfect tailwind in terms of um, the shift away from cash into electronic payments, mobile payments. So they provide, uh, whether it's government disbursement funding in Europe, uh, all the fintechs of the world, um, you know, the new banks, digital banks, even the buy now, pay later companies, they're all looking for a digital solution in terms of um, uh, providing sort of mobile and digital cards to their customers to access their funds. Uh, salary packaging as well, and obviously gaming and so on around the world in terms of getting instant access to your winnings. And they do have a large part of their business that comes from gift cards and shopping malls, and obviously that that's been really the headwind for them uh, this year in terms of the you know the shutdowns and malls closing down. That has impacted them, and that was a big part of their um, of their gross prof profit when they bought uh, PFS prepaid financial services um, early this year in Europe. That kind of changed the mix, and now the sort of the gift card part of the business has come down. And it's maybe a third. Uh, and that's going to become smaller and smaller as the other parts of the business um, continue to grow, which is really where their focus is. And um, what we like about it is, you know, they're actually profitable business. So unlike a lot of these fintechs out there, they actually focus on growing EBITDA consistently every year and running a profitable business. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's a mistake. Maybe they should just run losses and keep focusing on the top line and the valuation will be three times higher. But, you know, we, we like their thinking. They're cashed up. They've got about $130 million of cash. They've, they've, so this result 
uh, really shows that um, they're really focusing on that fintech part of the market. They're going to invest a bit more in the technology stack this year and invest in some uh, fintechs out there that gives them capabilities uh, to enhance their product suite, uh, which we think is really positive. Um, I think the market, because they couldn't give any guidance because there's still an element of unknown in terms of the gift card sales uh, in the upcoming Christmas period this year, they're going to wait for that and then they'll give guidance in February. Um, so maybe because of that, um, the market is sort of still a bit sort of uns unsure of what they sort of what they can earn this year. But the way we look at it, you know, you got to look beyond this year in, in a couple of years from now. You know, we think they could do you know close to 80 mil of EBITDA in FY22. Um, they're cashed up, so they will do acquisitions over time. And we think it's worth a lot more, you know, great management and board. They are the largest shareholders. And I think we'll start seeing some um, good announcements from them, investing in some new fintechs um, and some new contracts. Um, and, and they're saying that their business pipeline is as good as it's ever been. So um, I, think, I think the stock will continue to re-rate higher over the next few months. Um, and it's a, it's a really, really good profitable business. So they've already cracked the uh, the billion dollar market cap uh, sort of milestone. Is that is that nearing um, sort of nearing the larger end of your um, your companies, or um, how do you how do you look at it from? No, no, no. So, so in the all cap fund, we can actually buy uh, we could buy the big yeah. the big four banks if we wanted to. So uh, we just focus on that small mid cap part of the market because that's really where the opportunities are. That's all. Um, so that we don't have a limit on that. Uh, it's more on that small cap uh, dividend strategy where, you know, we, we sort of a lot more looking sub a billion. Yeah. Okay, Redbubble. Yeah, Redbubble. So th this is a true uh, sort of COVID uh, winner, really. Um, so what, what, what they are is they're a global marketplace for independent artists. So they've got about half a million different artists. They put up their artwork there, and then you as the customer – you can go onto their website and you can choose from almost 120 different product categories. So think T-shirts, uh, water bottles, um, you know, face masks is a big seller right now. All kinds of things, you know, uh, you can get it printed, uh, bed linen, and, and then they, they ship it to you. They don't hold any inventory. And so they have a really favorable working capital model, which you can see on that bottom right. Uh, they, you know, they, they get the money from the customer, and then, you know, they sort of pay off the artist and the fulfiller. They have 41 fulfillers around the world, which essentially print on demand. And so they, that's why they generate a lot of cash. They listed about, um, I think it's about six years ago, and they tripled their, their sales uh, or their marketplace revenue to $370 million in FY20. But what we really like is, you know, the shift to uh, e-commerce um, and that sort of structural change to online shopping, which you can see on that chart, how it's really accelerated in the U.S., um, and that's really benefiting them. And so with that, that huge momentum is carrying on. So if we look at that $370 million of revenue for FY20, Q4 did about $122 million. So annualized, that's almost 500 mil. And then in July, they did um, uh, $50 million of sales. Uh, which is carried is continuing um, into August. So they're annualizing $600 million of revenue based on July. So we like that accelerated momentum. Now, what's interesting is that based on our analysis uh, in Q4 in FY20, 
they did um, uh, they reported ten million dollars of EBITDA, so they're profitable. But um, because of accounting, the way they account for revenue, they only account it on when they deliver. So essentially, they they had the cost built in in Q4 and sales that will only be booked uh, this financial year. So the underlying EBITDA for Q4 was $18 million. Now, if we look at July, we estimate that they did um, $7 million of EBITDA. If you annualize that, that's $84 million. But the first quarter of each year is only 21%. So I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers there, but what I'm trying to say is basically they could possibly, if July momentum continues, earn somewhere between um, 80 to $120 million of EBITDA this year. And the consensus number um, is somewhere around um, 34 mil, I think. So uh, I think analysts will have to sort of play catch up this year. And uh, maybe, you know, people want to see the numbers come out first. Uh, we think it's extremely cheap. If, you know, forget the fact that it's got 80 mil of cash on the balance sheet. It's profitable. But if you compare it to, say, Temple and Webster, Kogan, they're trading on sort of three and a half, four times revenue multiples. These guys are on two times, and then their comparable global competitor called Etsy in the U.S., they're on the 11 or 12 times revenue multiple. So we think it's worth $5, but if that scenario that I painted in terms of the earnings actually plays out, this thing could be over $10. So really, really um, profitable, growing business at the right place, at the right time, you know, a real COVID winner. Yeah. Um, we had this uh, next company, Spirit, uh, presented our uh, Meet the CEOs uh, session uh, a few weeks back. Uh, very impressive uh, CEO, and um, I think you were saying um, that's probably what uh, what led you to back the company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we actually we owned ten percent of the of Spirit uh, quite a few years ago, back in the TBF uh, fund days, and we sold out. And we yeah, we came back earlier this year because of Sol Lukatsky, the MD. I mean. We really like the strategy that he's done. He's taken essentially sort of a sleepy fixed wireless telco and he's turned it into what he calls a modern uh, telco business, which is essentially combining telco services and IT services. So really not just the high-speed data, but also the other services, you know, whether it's um, cloud, cybersecurity, uh, managed services and so on, because that's what businesses really need. And instead of just selling their own fixed wireless, they created this really beautiful um, digital platform called SpiritX, and it allows, whether it's the customer or their, or their sort of the dealer partners uh, to sell, not just Spirit uh, fixed wireless, but other, you know, NBN or other providers' uh, data services, and also they can sell their other solutions. So they're growing really well. They are a roll-up. They will, you know, they'll keep raising money. They'll keep acquiring businesses, but they've got a clear strategy. Uh, we think they're going to exit FY21 you know, with over 85 mil revenue, 15% EBITDA margins. Um, it's tightly held. I think half the company is owned by five investors. Um, and we're seeing industry consolidation. So, you know, we've seen Unity Group, Opticom. Uh, there's 5GN out there. They're acquiring businesses. Uh, we, we think eventually Spirit will get um, acquired in the next year or two by one of those bigger guys. Uh, and so we, we think it's a really, really Good business. I mean, we came in quite early at 21 cents. It's trading around 35, 38, and but we think there's still lots of good news. It's going to be a strong quarter uh, of sales and more acquisitions to come. So, uh, really good story, and it's one of our biggest holdings. Right, very interesting. Um, 
on to the next one. I've um, heard a few uh, a few sort of technical people and fund managers uh, using some rather untechnical uh, character, characterize some of these companies in the in the buy now pay let's face as, as just simply being nuts. The evaluations, um, but you, um, you you're bullish on uh, on the sector as a whole. Yeah, I mean, look, the way we look at it is basically, um, you know, the the sort of, um, you know, you want to call them Gen Z or, or millennials or, you know, this is the future of, of consumers. These are the futures, the future of, of the credit market, and they don't want to use credit cards. You know, credit cards, um, you know, they're expensive. Um, they're just a, an old way of, of, of using credit. That They don't like that unpredictability of, you know, I'm sure you don't know what's going to be your, your credit card uh, bill statement next month, and I've got no idea as well. So they, they, they like budgeting. Uh, these are a different type of consumers maybe than what we are, and, um, you know, they like that installment, the, you know, that certainty of how exactly how much they like to pay. And I just think that installment payments, buy now, pay later, it's here to stay. It's the new form of credit cards. And, in fact, it's a safer way of lending because, really, they can block you there is no debt spiral. You know, the maximum late fee you can have is, is fixed at 40, 50 bucks. Average purchase is maybe 200 bucks. And if you don't pay, they block you. You can't use the service again. Whereas a credit card, you've got this huge limit and you can just keep using it. And then if you can't pay it, then that uh, interest just compounds and it becomes almost, um, it destroys some people's lives. So I actually think that buy now, pay later is a, is a more responsible form of lending. Um, and so it's here to stay, it's taking over, and this is just an early, early days of this structural, trans, uh, structural sort of shift away from credit cards into this. And what's interesting is that, you know, if you look around the world, the dominant players are Australian companies, right? So we're looking Afterpay, obviously, that's the juggernaut. Uh, but then, you know, Sezzle, that's the, the top three player in the U.S., in the North American market, you know. So the opportunity is huge, and you can see that just the Gen Z, there's 80 you know, 84 million um, potential customers just in Gen Z, and they've got one and a half million customers. So it's early days, and, and then, you know, you really got to take, you know, when, when you have this sort of like this huge shift, global shift, and it's such a huge market opportunity, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of millions of potential customers, you really got to take a long-term view, you know, and, and, you know, one way of looking at it is, you know, and, and so I guess Afterpay, um, the, the, the way the value says, now, why, why do we like Sezzle, really? Because we think that it's a pure play on the North American market. So whereas, you know, the Afterpay and Zip, for example, they've got a big part of the, the valuation tied to Australia. We feel the Australian market is a bit more mature, whereas Sezzle is that pure play in the sort of the biggest and, I guess, sexiest sort of growth market there is. And so if someone is going to acquire a company, it will probably be Sezzle because they don't have to pay a premium for the Australian business. They're growing fast, really good management team. They own half the business. Um, and, you know, they, um, uh, it's sort of obviously they're, they're covered uh, beneficiaries, so e-commerce, electronic payments, so that's benefiting them. And if you look at all these other giants out there, like the PayPal's of the world and so on, you know, they, they haven't been able to crack it. You know, if it was so easy to compete, why aren't these payment giants around the world, not, not, not the dominant players. Um, so I think it's a lot more difficult um, to get these customers than what people think, and I think eventually consolidation will occur. Um, and Sezzle, in our mind, is the most attractive because it's playing in that most 
lucrative part of the market. Now, now one thing I want to say, if you look at that middle uh, chart, it says purchase frequency by cohort. And this really tells you the whole story. Um, so the Cezil 2018 uh, cohort of customers are now using uh, the Cezil uh, installment product 15 times a year. So the ones that are signing this year, they're using it five times. The ones that came from last year, nine times. Now, Afterpay said in their results yesterday that the 2017 cohort of customers are using the Afterpay product 25 times a year now. So it basically shows you that, you know, these guys, this is just their way of budgeting and spending money. This is not just a one-off, I'll borrow 200 bucks. This is how I'm going to spend for the rest of my life. So it's here to stay. These are repeat customers, um, and I think they're going to be quite loyal. And uh, how do you value this thing? Well, Afterpay is trading on 20 times revenue multiple. And, you know, Cezzo is currently – well, it's had a huge run. I mean, we, we got in quite early, around 2 3 bucks. It's trading around $10 now, so it hit our short-term valuation. But we think that I'll probably do about 250 mil of revenue in two years from now. If you put a 10 times multiple on it, that's two and a half billion. So maybe that's another 20% upside from here, so $12. But then if it gets that afterpay multiple of 15 or 20 times, then you could see this going to $20 or more. And I'm sure like afterpay, Cezzle will expand into other countries and so on. So um, look, there's no doubt that the easy money in the short term has been made and we have been taking profits. But I think yeah. it, you know, as part of a portfolio, it's a, it's a very important um, industry you want to have exposure to. It's uh, certainly got a lot of, uh, a lot of people talking and uh, an exciting sector, no doubt. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, people ask about TNT. Uh, Ron, is that one that you want to do, um, quickly cover off? Uh, yeah, look, it's one that we own. We actually, it's, uh, it's officially our first five-bagger in the fund. So we made five times our money since last year on this one. So quite, quite happy about that one. It's essentially a cybersecurity uh, provider, mainly to sort of federal government, and local government agencies, um, you know, cybersecurity, good thematic right now with all the, the you know, the, the, the hacking that's going on uh, into yep. businesses, into government. We've seen big companies like even Toll Holdings, you know, getting hacked uh, for several months now. So re really good space to be in. They are an aggressive roll-up, so they are buying companies. They're on track. They already have $80 million of annualized revenue. They could probably do about 10%. EBIT margin. They're led by Jeff Lord as the chairman and largest shareholder. He's the guy who founded IT services company UXC a few years ago, and he sold that for $400 million. So you're really kind of backing him and doing a similar type of roll-up play in the cybersecurity space. You know, again, right thematic at the right time. Um, again, look, it, it's had a massive run, so we think it's kind of fairly priced here. We have been taking profits. But, but it's also something that we're going to keep um, holding, and if it, if it were to go lower, we would uh, sort of accumulate more. Uh, but, yeah, it's a good story, the, you know, the right thematic. Yep, very good. Um, we might have time for uh, just uh, a couple more um, stock picks, and then, um, then we can look to the future and um, see what you think about the U.S. elections. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, there may be a couple of companies that I really think that are worth um, uh, looking into that we own, big holdings for us. Uh, so one is, um, is uh, Resimac, RMC is the code. 
So the, one of the largest mortgage originators in the country, uh, $12 billion of a mortgage book, super profitable. In the last five years, they've grown profits every year for 30% per annum. They reported a $56 million impact in FY20, and that's after a really big um, $15 million of provisioning, um, and they're super conservative. So, you know, in theory, they actually did 70 mil of NPAT. Their market cap is only 550 mil. They pay a growing dividend every year of a couple of cents. And they're trading probably on, well, they're on 10 times P last year. But in terms of FY21, we think they're going to generate somewhere between 70 to 80 mil of NPAT. And so that's 16 cents a share. So really cheap, maybe a P of seven and a half. And, you know, um, although there is some uncertainty in terms of the property market, unemployment, uh, these guys um, are benefiting from a really favorable um, uh, cost margin on their debt. So they're, they're, their funding is essentially all tied to the, to the bank bill swap rate, and that's actually gone negative now. So they're, they're paying just a fixed margin. They're not even paying the, the bank bill swap rate because it's gone negative because of all this liquidity and the money printing. So that's, that's huge for them, and that's driving part of their profit. Uh, they've got a digital strategy as well. They own homeloans.com.au, so that's a good brand. And I just think they're going to keep growing. I think uh, it's really under-owned and not covered by not many people. So right. big business, huge profits, but uh, really cheap. So we think it's worth 2 bucks trading at $1.30. So um, it's a really good one that we like. And then the last one is a, a technology software business, sales enablement software. It's called Big Tin Can. B-T-H Ooh. is the code. Uh, I think the market cap is $400 million. They've got 70 mil of cash on the balance sheet. Uh, they're not yet profitable, but they don't want to be. Uh, it, this, is a, this is a sort of a software as a service. They've got about, they're guided to $50 million of annual recurring revenue for this year. We think they're going to do a few acquisitions in the next few months, plus they're going to grow organically, which they have been doing at 30 40% per annum for the last five years. And so we think that when uh, software companies reach that $50 million annual recurring revenue milestone, they, um, it's a huge milestone, and we think they get a massive uh, multiple re-rate from maybe six times ARR multiple to close to eight to ten times. And so if that were to happen during this financial year, which we think it will, uh, we think it's potentially worth another 50%. Um, and it will probably go into the SX300, There'll be more institutions that will have to own it and so on. So a really good story. Yep. Okay, so that's BTH, Big Tin Can, and uh, Peter yep. was asking about the, the cybersecurity company. That's TNT, Peter, um, yep. for your watch list, TNT. Um, right, uh, time for the, the crystal ball. Uh, Ron, uh, US, uh, US elections, um, how do you see that playing out? One and... Uh, what, what effect do you think it might have on, um, on the market? This is why I said expect volatility. So I think, you know, we've had the reporting season, so everyone's focus has been on that. I think once that sort of becomes review mirror, maybe late September, October, everyone's focus will turn to the U.S. elections. Look, if you ask me pre-COVID, it would have been an easy bet. Trump would have, would have won, you know, uh, at the end of the day, whether you like him or not, um, you know, America has never had um, such amazing economic times under his tenure. So he would have been re-elected. Obviously, he didn't handle the pandemic well, um, which, um, which obviously hurt his chances now. But, you know, 
it, it's actually a hard one to, to predict. I mean, the polls are telling you that Biden is going to win. But, you know, that was the same with Hillary Clinton back in 2016. I think it's almost, what's interesting is that a lot of respondents that have been sort of um, polled in the U.S., and when they were asked who you're going to vote for, they all say Biden. But then when they're asked who do you think your neighbor is going to vote for, they say Trump. And that's because no one wants to admit they want to vote for Trump. And this is why I think the polls are irrelevant. Uh, it's too hard to tell who's going to win. Um, there's two bits of data. You know, we haven't had many presidents get reelected in, a, in, a, in their year, uh, an election year which had a recession. So that works against him. But if, um, since 1984, if the stock market goes up in the three months leading to an election in the U.S., the incumbent president always gets elected. And so far, that's been the case. So that favors Trump. And now he's going to do everything he can to keep the markets up. He's obviously very focused on that. So I think he, and look, he might not even accept um, the results if he loses. So it's going to be uncertain. That's why we expect the market to be volatile. Um, so um, it, it's very hard to, to tell who's going to win. I just think, um, again, like we're not trying to predict the markets, we, we, you know, this is, this is at the end of the day not as important to us. We really focus on individual companies, the catalysts that apply to them, the industry that they're playing in. All this is going to do is cause market volatility, which presents opportunities for us to buy these companies at a cheaper price. That, that, that's all. Yeah. Look, it's, uh, it's been very, very interesting. Oh, I, was Ron, quite, you, uh, I was being a good politician in that answer. <laughs> 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 thanks uh thanks so much for uh, for taking the time today uh to chat uh chat to the audience yeah uh, maybe just a, a last word from you before we uh, wrap up yeah look i mean first of all th thank you very much for having me i really enjoyed this session um, and yeah look i think um you know like i said generally you know bullish on equities because of all the reasons we mentioned i think just you know pick the right companies and to just be a tread a little bit carefully in the next few months could get volatile, and, and which will be a perfect time to, to buy companies. And and look, if you if you if you're interested in what we do and the funds that I manage, um, I'm sure they, they we've got details there, or I'm sure you can send them more information if if you want to chat to us. I will click over to uh, to that final slide if I can get my. Um, there we go. Um, there are some details. We will be sending this presentation around um, that you can uh, go over again. We'll include a list of the companies that uh, Ron has mentioned today and their ASX codes. Um, we also do um, just uh, surreptitiously, uh, surreptitiously uh, serendipity. Uh, we have a, a structured product that we've put together um, at Reach, uh, which uh, looks to hedge out some of the uh, risk uh, around that uh, U.S. election. So um, if that is something that you would be interested in, uh, maybe just type into your question box, uh, hedge, and uh, we'll get uh, we'll get some of that information across to you about that uh, hedge product. Ron, thanks again very much for your time today, and um, I trust that everyone else uh, enjoys the rest of their day. So have a good Friday and uh, enjoy the weekend. Thank you.